Um, hey, I'm Dion. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I'm so glad to be here uh, with you today as we conclude this series that we've been spending the last four, now five weeks on. A series called Freeway, uh, A Not-So-Perfect Guide to Freedom. And uh, when you came in today, you should have gotten one of these. If not, make sure you get one on the way out from one of our awesome volunteers out in the lobby. Um, a, a little tiny x-ray. Mine is of a very um, broken or dislocated finger. Looks very painful. Um, maybe now you have some clue about what this is and why you got this on the way in. I'll talk more about that later on in the service. Um, But today we're going to talk about this uh, important fact as we deal with our own freedom, that we are not only free or made free for our own sake, but we are set free so that we can set others free, that we are rescued to become rescuers. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So first, pray with me. Father, we've been spending a lot of time talking about freedom the last few weeks. And uh, I pray that you are at work in our lives, making us more and more free every day so that we don't settle for life the way it is, that we uh, consistently have an insatiable desire for more and more of the freedom that you created us to have, the freedom that you sent your son in order for us to have. And Father, I, I know this is easy to talk about and it's hard to live out. So today, as we get ready to leave this series behind and, and move on to other things, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our lives that you'd make us truly free indeed, and that you'd show us what that means for the people around us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if it's because of the, of the video that we just saw or not, but this whole week, uh, I've been thinking about the idea of, of glass ceilings. Do you know what I mean? Uh, specifically, I guess I could be referring to this, glass ceilings, the unseen yet unbreachable barrier. Unseen yet unbreachable barrier, that's why it's a glass ceiling, that keeps minorities and women from rising to the upper rungs of the corporate ladder, regardless of their qualifications or achievements. So glass ceilings, that's what I've been thinking about. And, and I realize that as a, as a Caucasian, as a white male, I may understand this in theory, but I don't truly get this. I, I don't truly understand what it feels like to be, to be bumping into a glass ceiling, regardless of qualifications or achievements, to, to come up against some unbreachable, unseen barrier. Many of you do, and many of you have experienced that in the corporate world. But today, here's what I think I do understand, and, and even if you're a Caucasian male like me, I think you can understand this too, that it's not just in the corporate world that we face glass ceilings. Glass ceilings are, in fact, everywhere. Albeit, they they may be a little different than this kind of glass ceiling, and yet we all face unseen, seemingly unbreachable barriers in our lives. For example, I mean, how many of us have have been successful in life through hard work, achievement, and and we've kind of climbed the ladder, and, and we've experienced a great deal of happiness and gratification because of that? Maybe we've created a comfortable life for ourselves or for our, our loved ones, and, uh, and, and we feel like, yeah, we're, we're getting somewhere, we're, we're moving somewhere, and then suddenly, someday, for some reason that we don't understand, the next achievement, the next bit of recognition, the next raise, the next promotion, it doesn't pay off the way the other ones used to. You seem to just top out in terms of your happiness or peace of mind or sense of self or your gratification. Like you're bumping up against some unseen, unbreachable barrier. You you just top out. Or how many of us have experienced this in healing? As we're talking about tragedies in life that we are overcoming, or a bad upbringing, or hardship that we've faced in life. And and, and many of us have found that through counseling, through introspection, through, through the counsel of friends, through prayer, through our faith, 
We've been able to heal and pull ourselves out of the depths. And yet, how many of us have found that, that one day, you know, you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do, but it, but it just doesn't take you further. You seem to be hitting some glass ceiling. See, these glass ceilings, they're everywhere. They, they can be um, found in your pursuit of purpose, in your relationships, even in your own life journey with God, even in your faith life. And today we're going to talk about what that's all about, and today I'm going to give you something that I think might help you break through those glass ceilings in whatever way that you might be facing them in life. But but here's the thing, I'm going to talk about that later, you've got to wait for it, okay? Um, So here's my promise to you, if you're good, and if you laugh at all my jokes, even the not so funny ones, I promise we'll get back there uh, to a very powerful truth that I think might help you if you're feeling stuck or if you feel like you're, you're bumping into one of those unseen, unbreachable barriers in your life. Uh, but first, we have to go back uh, on a detour. We have to go back 2,700 years to the time of a man, a prophet, by the name of Isaiah. Now, out of curiosity, how many of us have ever read Isaiah's prophecies? They're recorded in a book of the Bible called Isaiah. Okay, a few of us have. Uh, maybe some of us have started reading Isaiah and stopped. <laughs> That's been the case of a lot of people I know. That was the case of, of myself a, f- a few dozen times probably. Because here's the thing about Isaiah. If, if you know anything about Isaiah's prophecies, and if you don't, that's okay, but Isaiah's prophecies are said to predict more accurately and more vividly than any other prophet the coming of Christ. So I, if you want to know more about Christ coming and you want to see the prophecies that predict Jesus coming into the world, it is said that Isaiah is the best place to go. So many of us start reading Isaiah because we're like, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be all these cool prophecies talking about Jesus a good 700 years before he ever came. And uh, we read Isaiah eager to read words of comfort and hope and promise. And then you start reading Isaiah. And Isaiah is not a bunch of words of hope and comfort and promise. It is an awful book to study. Seriously, if if you're in a small group and someone in your small group ever recommends that your group should study Isaiah, kick them out. (laughs) They don't belong there. And if you decide to keep them because you're more compassionate than I am, just make them promise that they'll never talk again in small group because it's a terrible idea to study Isaiah. In fact, uh, we we had a Bible study here and the group decided one time to study Isaiah and I tried to dissuade them. And uh, it was a Bible study that I was helping teach. And I tried to dissuade them. I thought, you know, you really don't want this. And they said, yes, we do. We want this. And I said, no, you don't. And they said, yes. And so I was a good leader and I gave in to the whims of the people. And about three weeks in, they said, why are we doing this? We don't want this. And I said, I told you. See, it's, it's, it's no good. Because here's the thing about Isaiah. Isaiah is not all about the Messiah. It's in there and it's buried and you have to look for it. But on the surface, most of what Isaiah writes about is is gloom and doom and destruction. It's all about how God's people, the Israelites, are going to be taken off into exile in a foreign land. And how their homeland is going to be left desolate, empty. It's all about punishment. It's all about warfare. It's all about bloodshed. And it's all about judgment. And, And really, who wants to read about that stuff? Isn't life hard enough on its own? But here's what I will tell you. Isaiah is not all bad. There's some good stuff in there, and, and it probably is worth studying as long as you know what you're getting yourself into. Because right near the end of the book, especially, when you're feeling all depressed and worn out from all the gloom and doom and despair, all because you didn't heed my warning and you decided to study the book anyway, things start to turn around. And Isaiah begins to speak different kinds of words 
The words of comfort and, and uh, hope in all of the words that we've been hoping for throughout, throughout the whole book. And we're going to look at some of those words today. So we're going to go to Isaiah 61 right now. You can take out your Bible or your smartphone. You can go to uversion.com or you can look along right up here. Isaiah chapter 61 starting at verse 1. Isaiah says this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. So God's spirit is resting on me. He's a prophet. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this is new because I just told you for 60 chapters, we've been hearing anything but good news. We've been hearing condemnation and destruction and judgment. And all of a sudden Isaiah says, okay, it's, it's you know, chapter 61. I guess I'm ready to lay some good news on you. And, and this is going to be so different what we're about to see in Isaiah 61 from the rest of the other chapters, that some scholars have even thought that maybe this, this writer who wrote Isaiah 61 isn't the original Isaiah. They thought maybe it was another guy. Now, most scholars believe it's still the same Isaiah. I believe it's still the same Isaiah writing these words. I think that Isaiah just started taking serotonin or something. His life got a little better, and so he started being happier, and so he now starts proclaiming good news to the poor. And we're going to look at these words in just a second. And I'm going to go, go through them, and they're, they're great words of poetry. And here's what I'll tell you. If you're feeling sort of like the Israelites must have been feeling at hearing Isaiah's words, if you're feeling beat down by life, if you're feeling just tired and worn out from all the gloom and doom and despair, you know, go home and study these words on your own. Great words of poetry, beautiful words of promise. They're a little hard to translate when I'm just reading them here uh, with you today. But, but I highlighted for you in these words some phrases to highlight the optimism, the hope, and the comfort that Isaiah is trying to give to these people after, after years of, uh, of other kinds of messages. So he's been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. Let's look at it. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom, that's what we're talking about, for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, not judgment, and the day of vengeance of our God, against our enemies, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who grieve in Zion, provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, you know, not Bradford pears that get knocked down in a rainstorm, but these are going to be mighty oaks of righteousness, not easily taken down by the, the troubles of life. They will be a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, now again, this is after Israel has heard about how they're going to be cut down and taken off into exile and destroyed. And God says, there's a new day coming where you will be like oaks of righteousness. You will be a planting for my glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been de devastated for generations. Now strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. See, before Israel was going to be carried off to work in other people's fields and to shepherd their flocks as servants. And now God says there will be a reversal. Other people will serve you. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. We're going to talk about this later. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. 
See, after years of speaking words of, of condemnation and judgment and despair and just heaping bad news on God's people, Isaiah says, he says, you know what? This isn't going to go on forever because the time is coming when God will restore you and he will renew you and he will rebuild your city and you will once again know the favor of God. It's coming in the future. And let me just speak a word to those of you today who, who are sitting in a life situation where you feel broken. And uh, maybe in your life you've you just been beat down by failures. Maybe you feel like your circumstances are beyond hope. If so, I want you to hear these words of Isaiah. That you are not abandoned no matter how bleak it looks in this present moment. There is restoration for you and it is coming. See, see, the reason I can say that to you is because Jesus took these very words from Isaiah 61 and at the beginning of his ministry, he stood up in a synagogue and, and he began speaking them about himself. He stood up in front of the people and he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to, and to set free the captives and, and to bring light to those who are trapped in darkness. And, and, and Jesus spoke all these words and he said, this is what I've come to do. So these words from Isaiah 61, they're not just for Israel after their time of exile. They're for all of us sitting in this room today if we are in Christ because this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to set us free. He's come to bring healing and restoration and renewal. It's real and it's coming for all of us. So, so you are not forsaken. You are not abandoned. You are not forgotten Jesus has come, and Jesus is here. So just keep waiting on the Lord. Israel had to wait 70 years for these promises of restoration to be fulfilled, but they were fulfilled. And maybe you're in the middle of that season of waiting, and it feels like it's taking forever. But keep waiting, because God loves you, and Jesus came into the world for you. And he is going to change the reality of your, of your despair and your gloom and doom. He's going to change it into joy and rejoicing and gladness. If you believe that for yourself right now, say amen. Amen, it's true. Jesus guarantees it. And, and maybe today this is all that you need to hear. Because maybe, maybe you're just so broken by life, you're so without hope, that this is all that you need, and you don't even have to listen to the rest of this message, because this is powerful enough for you. But if you have ears to hear, I, I want to tell you about something else. This goes a step further. See, see, there's a bigger principle here that Isaiah speaks to, that, that God speaks to all over the scriptures. And here it is. Not only is God coming to rescue you when you are in despair, but, but here's a powerful truth, that God uses the broken to make things whole. See, not only does God come to rescue the broken, not only will God come to bring joy to the broken, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of despair, but, but God will actually use the broken to make things whole. This is what God does. I mean, after all, he's going to use this broken prophet by the name of Isaiah to, to, bring, to bring healing and wholeness to the nation of Israel. And then he promises in Isaiah 61 that he's going to use this broken nation, this nation that has literally been destroyed. After 70 years, he's going to not only reestablish them, but he's going to use them to become a blessing to all nations. See, that was God's intention for Israel, that he would so bless them that all nations would be blessed through them. And that's happened in Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus himself, as I said, he, 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 he took these words of Isaiah and he applied them to his own, his own ministry. But think about this. Even with Jesus, think about this. Before Jesus could bring healing or restoration to our broken planet, and I mean, just, just think about how broken our planet is. Think about what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS and, and the brutality. Think about the unrest in our own city. But before Jesus could begin to bring healing and restoration to our broken planet, first, get this, first, he himself, the Son of God, would have to be wounded. His body broken, his blood poured out at the hands of sinful men. And then, by his wounds, we could find healing. See, even Jesus was broken before he brought wholeness. And this is just how God works. And this is how God continues to work. I mean, you can think of great people in history like Nelson Mandela, one of the greatest people of our time. Right? He was imprisoned. He was treated unjustly. He was beaten. He suffered greatly at the hands of an unjust, unjust regime. And finally, when he was released from prison, he didn't seek justice. This broken man, he pursued healing for his nation. See, this is what God does. Think about Moses. Moses, you know, there's a guy way back in the Bible. You've heard of him. He rescued God's people from slavery. One of the biggest rescues that we saw in all of the Old Testament. The biggest rescue until Jesus came and rescued us from sin and death. That was Moses. And if you know some of Moses' story, you, you know he was born a Hebrew. He was born an Israelite. And then he was brought into the house of Pharaoh. And he was, he was raised as a prince there in Pharaoh's house. And then if you know Moses' story, he committed a crime. He, he killed a man. And he fled to the wilderness. And so, so Moses went from being this prince of Egypt to being this broken man living out in the wilderness all on his own, in exile, a nomad, a fugitive. And this is what I find so amazing. It wasn't in the palace that God called Moses to deliver his people. It was out in the wilderness that he called Moses to deliver his people. God appears to this broken man in a burning bush and he says, Moses, you're going to go back to Israel and you're going to rescue my people. And Moses is thinking, I'm a broken man. Do you know what I've done? And God says, exactly. Because I love to use the broken to make things whole. And just think about the world. Think about people in your life. Think about the people who've really made a difference, who've done significant things for good. So many of them first have known hardship and trouble because this is how God works. So again, a word to you if you're broken. A word to you if you're struggling. A, a word to you if, you if you are feeling some despair or hopelessness in your life. Not only is God coming to rescue you, but God uses the broken. He uses people like you in circumstances like yours to make other things whole. And, and we get why this works. The broken have credibility. They have perspective. Now, it's amazing to me that, that this is true. And some of you may struggle to believe it. And some of you may believe it, but, but you may be running in your head in your mind right now, and you may be making a false assumption. You may be assuming that, that you know, since God loves to rescue the broken and God loves to use the broken to bring wholeness to others, you may be assuming that God is responsible for your brokenness. You may be assuming right now that God broke you. 
And that doesn't obviously feel too good. Here's what I want to tell you. That God doesn't control everything, but he can redeem anything. See, I think this is a big misunderstanding for us, especially when we're in pain in life. We we assume that God is really in control of everything, and he's not, not like we think. God doesn't micromanage every part of the universe and every action that people take. It's just not true, right? I mean, why else... How else could you explain what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? As they took forbidden fruit, the one thing God told them not to do, and they ate of it. God wasn't in charge of that moment. See, what we see is that God isn't a control freak. He's not trying to control everything, but he can redeem anything. Now, I I don't know if you you all remember this. Um, Back when I was a kid growing up, there was a cartoon called Inspector Gadget. Does anyone remember that? Uh, maybe your kids watched it. Maybe you watched it. Um, Inspector Gadget, he's kind of this uh, secret agent guy, um, kind of like uh, Maxwell Smart on Get Smart. He's, uh, he's a secret agent fighting against the forces of evil, but he's clumsy. He's, you know, foolish. He's naive. He's falling into the bad guy's traps all the time. He's making a mess of things all the time, and yet he's a very, very successful secret agent, constantly thwarting evil. But it's not because he's doing it. Do you remember who's behind the scenes? Someone's got to remember. But yeah, thank you. Penny, his niece Penny and the dog, their dog Brain. So uh, his niece Penny and their dog Brain are kind of behind the scenes. And, and, and here's the thing. Inspector Gadget's going about his life making a mess of things, and they're behind the scenes making everything work out. Now, now they don't control him, but they just have a way of working everything around him so in the end it works out okay. See, see this is how it is with God. If you don't watch Inspector Gadget, that's okay. Just, just drop that, Okay. Um, this is how it is with God, though. This is what God does. Uh, God lets us make messes of our lives, and, and he lets life go on, and yet, you know, he doesn't control that stuff. And yet, in his goodness, he has the power to redeem all of that stuff, somehow to make it all work out for our good. And that's a powerful truth if you can accept it. So, so 2,700 years ago, Isaiah was speaking to this nation who was about to go through some serious suffering. And he was trying to explain to them that this was not on God, this was on them. This was was a consequence of their own actions. And he tried to explain to them that that it was going to be okay, though, because after a season of discipline was over, God would restore them. And not only would God restore them, but he would use them to become a blessing to all nations. But get this. See, if you can take hold of all this, herein lies the key that I told you about earlier, the key to breaking through those glass ceilings in life. Here's what I'll say. Some of you, um, pain isn't your thing. Brokenness isn't your thing. You don't feel a lot of pain and brokenness right now today. Uh, For some of you, the glass ceiling that you feel in life is, uh, is your success or it's Um, your relationships, or your purpose, or your faith, or or whatever it is, but you're still bumping up against some glass ceiling. You feel like you're not getting anywhere, and you're frustrated. Uh, If that's you in life, I want to apply to you the same principle that God gave to Isaiah and the people of Israel to leverage to get you through that glass ceiling. And here's the principle. It's the power of turning outward. See, ultimately, this is the game-changer 
for all of us, whether we're talking about success or relationships or whether we're talking about healing, it's, it's all about the power of turning outward. You can get pretty far in life living an inward-focused life, but eventually, if, if you're living life inwardly, you will top out in healing, in purpose, in success, in relationships, in your faith. But when you learn the power of turning outward, then you might find your next breakthrough. I'll connect this to Isaiah in a second, but first let me just talk about other areas of life. Uh, Jim Collins, have you heard of him? If not, uh, if you're a business person, you should read his books. He's a great business writer. He wrote books called uh, Good to Great and uh, How the Mighty Fall and a bunch of other great books. Um, But in Good to Great, what Jim Collins did was he studied some of the best corporations in, uh, in the world some of the most long-lasting ones. And you realize there are some that are good, some that kind of become a big deal for a while and they're never heard of again, and then there are some that are truly great. And he started to study what made the great companies great. And he realized that a lot of it had to do with leadership. And so he started studying the leaders at the really great companies, and he started comparing the attributes of those leaders to the leaders of of just the good companies. And he created this, this ranking system where he talked about five levels of leaders. So one, two, three, four, five. Now, he discovered that, that good companies are led by level three or four leaders. This, this should be pretty you know, intuitive, pretty basic. They're led by three, level three or four leaders. But the great companies are led by people he calls level five leaders. So he started studying what the difference was between a level five leader and a level three or four leader. And, and he, he realized it came down to two attributes. What sets level five leaders apart, the best leaders of the best companies that endure over time, you know, quarter after quarter, produce results that ride out recessions and everything else, he realized that the two qualities that separate a level five leader from all the rest are professional will. So, I mean, they're dedicated to their profession. They work hard. They've got a work ethic. Professional will balanced with personal humility. And as Collins dug around, he really discovered that that personal humility is the X factor in becoming great. Now, it shouldn't surprise us Jesus said this himself. And yet, do you, do you see what this is saying? It's saying that, that if you're bumping up against a glass ceiling in terms of your success, if you discover the power of turning outward, if, if you learn humility that it's not all about you, and you begin to use your clout, not just for bigger pay bonuses for yourself, but, but to serve others, that's how you become truly great. That's how you break through. Same is true with churches. Not all of us are in leadership of churches, but we're all sitting in one, so we might as well talk about it. Right? Uh, there can be great churches that are built off inward focus. I, good churches, I should say. But eventually they'll top out. You know, you can build a church and you can give people what they want. And, uh, and your church will grow and people will be happy and people will love you as a leader. And, and the church will grow and it will thrive up to a certain point. But, but those are only good churches. The churches that are truly great are the ones that leverage the power of turning outward. Those are the churches that God keeps blessing. Those are the churches that survive and, and they may experience their bumps along the way. But they're the ones that are truly great in God's sight. Now, this is where this comes back around to Isaiah, this power of turning outward. That ultimately, as God's speaking to Isaiah and as he's speaking to us, even as it relates to our own healing or our own pursuit of freedom, it cannot be just about us. If you feel like you're stuck in your journey to healing, if you've gone through counseling and you've read books, and I think all those things are great, by the way, 
But if you feel like you're stuck and you're just not moving forward, then maybe it's time for you to turn your life outward and to become a healer for someone else. See, that's how you're going to find your next level of healing. Because here's what I've discovered in my life. When you find out that God can use your brokenness, your pain, your tragedy, the stuff that happened to you that you feel shame and disgrace about, when, when you discover that God can actually use that stuff, he didn't cause it, he didn't make it happen, but he can redeem that and he can use that stuff for the good of someone else, man, it totally turns your past and your pain on its head and it can set you free. It's powerful. I've seen it in my life. Maybe you've seen it in yours. See, see, for us here today, as we've been talking about healing, we've been talking about our freedom and all the things that we need to do in our lives to get free, I just want to remind you that if it's only about us, we'll never get to the place that God wants us to be. We'll never experience the level of freedom that God wants us to have. Ultimately, even though we may be wounded people, still trying to work out things in our own life, if we can remember that the wounded are sometimes the best healers, if we can remember that whenever we turn our lives outward and, and seek to serve others, that's when we'll have our next breakthrough. Then that's how we become truly whole, truly free, truly great in God's sight. Let me pray. Father, it's so hard when we're living life, and especially when we're experiencing pain, it's so hard to turn outward because we just want to curl up like a ball. We want to turn inward. We want to make it all about ourselves. And God, that's a defense mechanism that's just natural. And yet, I pray, God, that you would help us leverage the power of turning outward in our lives. To recognize that even though we may be struggling and we may be suffering and we may be in pain, we may be wounded, that you're going to come and rescue us in good time and we can trust you. Help us remember that you use the wounded to be the best healers. And so, God, don't let us shy away, even though we're broken and imperfect even though we're still crying out for rescue. Don't let us shy away from reaching out a hand of rescue to someone else, saying a prayer for someone else, bringing a meal, whatever it is, being a friend to someone else, God. God, we thank you today that you are our healer. And we pray that uh, you just keep us marching along on this journey to freedom. Even though we're moving on from this and talking about other things next week, Keep speaking to us tenderly. Words of restoration and hope. God, words of, of challenge, but words of compassion and mercy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, you know, today we're, we're bringing this series to a close, as I've mentioned a few times. And uh, we've learned a lot of powerful truths. Uh, here, here's a recap of some of the things that we've talked about in this series. So we've talked about the gift of slowness. We've talked about um, ownership talked about forgiveness. We talked about labels. Today we talk about the power of living an outward life. I want you to take a moment and look at those again really briefly. You know, are there places where you are just getting started? If so, uh, note that. You know, are there things that you've just, you know, light bulbs went on in your mind and you're like, hey, th that's something that I've not done or that I've not paid attention to. And, and you know, jot a note down or talk about this on the way home from church and say, you know what, this is something I need to keep pursuing. Are, are, are there places where you 
have made some progress, but now you feel like you're, you're topping out. You're hitting a glass ceiling. We've talked about that today. Are there places in your life where you're afraid to tackle? I mean, you feel overwhelmed like you are powerless to deal with those things. Remember this. Again, on the way in, you got one of these. One of these little x-rays. And this is a reminder to you that even though you're still broken, even though we're not all there yet as it relates to our freedom, here's a reminder that our brokenness can be beautiful. That God can truly use it in beautiful ways for ourselves, but for other people around us. See, not only is God capable of restoring us from our brokenness, not only is he the great healer and he promises that in due time he will bring healing, but even though we're broken, even though we're still a mess, God has called us to be his men and his women to bring healing and restoration to the world around us. And as we do that, as we trust God to say, God, even though I'm still mangled, even though I'm still broken, even though I'm still a mess in my own life and can barely keep it together, you've called me to pour myself into other people. When we do that, we discover the power of turning outward. And God can set us free more than we ever thought possible. So here's what we want you to do with this. You can take it home and you can, I guess you can paint on it or draw on it with a Sharpie and make it pretty. Or you can just keep it, you know, in your, in your wallet, in your purse, stick it on your mirror. And every time that you feel overwhelmed, every time that you feel inadequate, every time that you feel afraid and you start to feel your life turning back inward, remember that God loves the broken and he loves using the broken to make others whole. See, this is what God does. He works in strange ways and yet this is what he does. He sets us free. He makes us come alive. I want you to stand on your feet as we sing this song, declaring our freedom, claiming God's promises for ourselves. Amen.